Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome. This is Books of the Year, but then you know that because you clicked on the podcast download thing. And we're here again. We are your friends at Books of the Year. And it's a delight to be back. Always, and, yes. always a delight. Uh, thanks very much for the correspondence. Big guest coming up. Uh, this is from Journeyman2000. That's how it's signed. So, you know, maybe he's a spy or something. <laughs> yeah. She's a spy. Hello, you two. Thought I'd let you know about a recent charity shop splurge I had. I went there with the intention of giving them a pair of brand new dress shoes black leather, medium heel, never worn, since you asked, and not looking at the many shelves of books they have there. Uh I'd done quite well. Upon arrival, I walked directly to the back of the shop, not taking my eyes off the destination. Once there, a friendly volunteer took my shoebox, thanked me, and took them off to the back. Now for the challenge of getting back outside without buying anything. Well, I don't mind telling you, I made it all but three paces before a shiny book cover caught my eye. I'll just have a quick look, I thought. Ten minutes later, I had four books in my hands and I was headed over to the till to purchase my wares. I got a Jonathan Franzen novel called Purity, which I've been meaning to read for some time, a hardback no less, and three classics by Dickens. That's 27 nil to the charity shop. Thanks for the pod, says Ron. I thought at the end of Ron... Oh, it's a Ron. OK. That he was going to say, and I saw TikTok and I thought, <laughs> and I thought that's the one for me. I do remember not. that that cover for Purity is very shiny and eye catchy. It definitely works. Um, so I can see why you, why that leapt out of the uh, bookshelves at you. Uh, an email from Deborah, who uh, of course wrote to Books of the Year at Yahoo.com. Uh, dear, ordered alphabetically and ordered geographically. Yes. Uh, big fan of the pod, loving your work. Thank you for the recent episode featuring uh, Araminta Hall. I was unaware of her books, but. After hearing her talk so brilliantly on your podcast, I went out to buy a copy of One of the Good Guys, and I have to say, I devoured it. Great story, great writing, a real page-turner. It's so nice to be introduced to an author you've never heard of before, so thank you. It seems there are three or four other novels by her available. I definitely want to read them. If you have any recommendations of where to go next, I'd be grateful. Keep up the good work, uh, Deborah. The recommendations, that's the point of this podcast. The whole that's podcast what we is do. a recommendation. His recommendations of book to go for. Uh, the producer of this podcast, uh, when he's in, because sometimes he's sort of away, down the line, yeah, yeah, says he's a big fan of Our Kind of Cruelty by Araminta Hall, and he recommends that one. Ah. Should you want an extra steer? Remember, if you'd like to get in touch, you can email us at any time. We'd love to hear from you. Books of the Year at yahoo.com. We're on Twitter at Books of the Year, Instagram and Threads at Pick Any Page. Now we talk to novelist, former CIA agent or analyst, we'll have to get yeah. the precise term clarified for us, previous Books of the Year star, David McCloskey. So in record time, we're welcoming back uh, to the podcast best-selling author of Damascus Station, David McCloskey. 
I always get this wrong. David McCloskey. I don't usually get it wrong in front of David McCloskey. Hello, David. How are you? I'm great to be here, Simon. Thank, Thank you, you so much, much for is having that, me is back. Irish or Scottish in derivation? Uh, Irish. Okay. Yeah, is my belief. Now, last time when we spoke to you, it was the middle of the night. You were at home? I was at home. I think uh, if you had seen the background behind me, it would have been uh, my bedroom. It was uh, via Zoom, and yes. I think beneath me were a whole bunch of children's toys that I hid from the, <laughs> the Zoom camera. Well, I remember right. thinking that you, you there was something about you that was completely unbelievable, because you've written these astonishing <laughs> books, you've been a spy, and at four in the morning, you looked amazing. Yeah. So yeah. at this point, we thought, this, <laughs> oh, this calm. At least from the waist up. You know? okay. Yeah, that's yeah, right. yeah, yeah. That's from the neck up, actually, <laughs> uh, as I recall. Anyway, it's very nice to... Uh, you're over in the UK. It's very nice to uh, to talk to you. Thanks for coming in. You must be bold. I mean, the response to this book is even stronger and more enthusiastic than Damascus, isn't it? I think so. I hope so. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's been exciting to see the reception over here, for sure, to, to, to both novels. Um, and, you know, maybe a little surprising for an American spy author. Uh, but, you know, it's been it's been wonderful. And I'm excited to actually be over here this time to promote it. Just one question before we talk about the book. Do you ever stop being an analyst? Do you ever... St no. Th those skills are so sort of ingrained in you that, you know, if you walk into a room or if you walk into a shopping centre, if you walk into a studio, do you ever stop thinking like you work for the CIA? I don't think you ever stop being an analyst. I think it's a it's a it's more of a state of mind than it is a job. Uh, I think... You know, you do stop working for the CIA, so to some degree you kind of let pieces of that go, or at least I have. But I think the analytical mindset never never really goes away. I think it's, it's part of, you know... Analyzing people? Everything. Analyzing people, situations, what's really going on in the world, you know... How is my book doing? All these kinds of things. You bring a particular and that's just a paranoid you know, author. Well, yeah, that's paranoid author. I mean, paranoid author and analyst share a lot of the similar uh, traits. I, would I can say. answer that last question because yeah. the answer is very well. Uh, <laughs> Moscow X is the is the new book. Matt, describe the cover, please. Yes, it is. Uh, well, it's thunderclouds gathering over Red Square in Moscow. Uh, so dark, dark clouds take up the top half of the of the front cover, and then, as I say, the bottom half is is Red Square with Basil's Cathedral in the in the background and uh, a murder of crows I'm going to say flying across <laughs> there very good very the good yeah uh, Moscow X in, in lime green Dave McCloskey uh, above it uh, Simon Seabag Montefiore uh, former guest on this podcast saying it's thrilling propulsive and terrifying unputdownably superb well done Simon and uh, the most authentic depiction of CIA deep cover operations you will find in print and that comes from former CIA senior operations officer John now I would love to say is this John Cipher? John Cipher, yes. Is that That's, literally his name? That, is John Cipher? That is Cipher? literally his name. And he works for the CIA. <clears throat> and he worked for the CIA. Like a Barry Codeword. He was born it's to amazing. work. For, he was born to work for the CIA wow. with a name like that. That's right. Is that nominative determinism? <laughs> I think it is, is that what that is? <laughs> I think it is. Okay. So um, it's also not only is it a great title, because you go uh, having heard what Matt has just mm. said, describe the cover. You look at the title. You go, yes, I'll buy that. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah. So we almost can we we can dispense with this uh, interview. But what is Moscow X? So Moscow X is a fictional component of the CIA's very real Russia house in the novel. Um, it's kind of CIA uh, lingo, I guess. That if you have the X after something, that is typically a station in exile. Uh, so what does that mean? That means if, if you, let's say in Tehran, mm -hmm. uh, let's say your embassy is 
overrun. And the CIA has to set up operations outside of that country. Uh, the place would be called Tehran X, and that would be located outside of Iran in a third-party country. In this case, you know, I don't go into specifics around the station in Moscow being closed, but I liked the mentality of that. Uh, and I wanted to create a kind of fictional component of our Russia operations that could do, frankly, pretty wild stuff. So Moscow X of the novel is really charged with taking this kind of <clears throat> outside-the-box aggressive approach to dealing with the Russians. I thought it fit as a title, worked as the name of the component, got the spirit of the operation I wanted to run in the book uh, just right. And it's run in the novel by this sort of also deranged and colorful CIA case officer named Artemis Proctor. Yes, Artemis Aphrodite. That's Proctor. right. Yeah, right. Her full I mean, Christian name. <laughs> yes. <laughs> astonishing. Yeah. An astonishing name. Is this uh, a sequel to Damascus Station? No. Uh, ish. It is. You could read it on its own. Okay. Um, but there is some character overlap. I would say it exists in the same universe as Damascus Station. It takes place in the present day. Damascus Station took place in the early years of the Syrian Civil War. So there's certainly there's a continuity here from character standpoint. The events of Damascus Station are referred to offhand in this novel, but it is not. We don't pick up where we left off, and we don't have the same set of characters. Uh, we have, with the exception of of Proctor and the deputy director of the CIA in this novel, who was the chief of the Near East Division in Damascus Station, we have kind of a blank slate of so, people. So introduce us then for newcomers to Artemis Aphrodite <laughs> Proctor. So she uh, she was the chief of station in, in Damascus Station. And in this novel, uh, she's running Moscow X. She is the case officer that I think many of us hope and wish exists somewhere inside CI. We would never want to work for her. Um, <laughs> she could never work at a normal place, which is why she's ended up at CIA. She's competent. Um, it, she has a foul, she's got a pouty mouth, let's yeah. say. And uh, she is. she both abuses her people and loves them at the same time. And so she is a kind of character, I think, who as a as a writer you just you hope you find because you put her in a scene and you don't know what's going to happen you know i mean in the first I know it's not a spoiler to say in the first few pages of this novel she has uh woken up drugged by a russian intelligence officer been shown pictures that the russians have taken of her indiscreetly yeah, she's not wearing any clothes and I... and she's clubbed someone over the head with a bottle of horse milk and you know none of this uh, it I have to say, this is why I love this character so much. None of this stuff came really from me. At least it doesn't feel that way. I sat down to write a scene. I didn't know what was going to happen, and that's what she did. Uh, so that's the type of, of character she that's is. That's not much of a defense, is it? I didn't, <laughs> honestly, officer, I didn't know what was going to happen. It just came out of my pen. I, I can take no responsibility for her actions as, as the author. She's a, she's a thrilling character, and uh, I loved her in Damascus Station, and I loved her in Moscow X. And I, uh, Moscow X, by the way, is what a, what a piece of work this book is. Uh, I absolutely loved it. Um, here's a, this is not going to be uh, a question really about uh, the book as such. It's more it's more of a, a of a plea really, which is that. Um, so I tend to hear this criticism of fictional books mainly from men. 
which is I don't read fiction because it's made up. I read non-fiction because I want to hear about facts and blah, blah, blah. But fiction I don't bother with because it's all made up. And I and I get that, and I, I know I, I can sympathise with that. However, here's where it's wrong, is there is a part, very earlier in the book, uh, one of our characters who we've not really talked about yet, uh, Anna, who's a central character in this book, mm. fires an AK-47. Now, those of us who know anything about AK-47s know, it's named after the guy who invented it, 47, I don't know what the 47 means, whether it was the year it was invented or the number of rounds it fires, it doesn't matter. David will know. It's the year. Yeah. It's the year. Okay, yeah. so it's the year, it's named after the guy who invented it, and that uh, the reason it's so popular is it will work in virtually any conditions, mm -hmm. and you can throw it in the dirt and it still fires. What you don't know is how it feels to fire an AK-47, and that's what you have Anna doing. And it was when I read that one sequence of Anna firing an AK-47 that I thought, this is what you get from a fictional book that you don't get from non-fiction. Mm. And it's a real thing happening, but it, it spoke to, to a part of me that says, I'm so glad that I do read the amount of fiction I do mm. because... Whether it's made up or not, the feel is what you can't get from nonfiction. I think there is something to that for sure. I, I mean, it, it's honestly why I was attracted to writing fiction to begin with is you get down to that level of what's actually going on inside someone's brain, their physiology, their emotional state. Um, you know, Damascus Station came out of a desire on my part to just write about Syria and not to do it from the lens of here's the 30,000 foot view of, of US policy or what the CIA had been doing or whatever, but to get down to the level of, well, here's how individual people encountered this conflict and, and how that led to all kinds of different experiences and, and perspectives on the war and, and uh, you know, relationships to the Assad regime or to the United States or whatever. And I think in this book, it was a way to understand, I mean, through Anna's character, let's say, a way to understand or try to get under the hood of what is it like <laughs> to live inside Putin's system as, as a relatively well-off Russian? I mean, I don't think that's a perspective that a lot of us can really understand. Uh, but, you know, getting at that through the lens of a fictional character, firing an AK-47, being an intelligence officer, living inside Russia um, today, you know, it, it is hard, I think, if you're writing, a, you know, a history of, of Russia or whatever, you, you don't often get down to that level or it's harder. And I think I think novels allow that. Anyone, as a sidebar, anyone who doesn't read fiction because it's made up is an idiot. I mean, oh, yeah, no, we all know that. This is, yeah, yeah, to which yeah, I would yeah. say, Godfather, did you see that? Mary mm, Poppins, did mm, you see that? Star mm, Wars, did mm. you see any of that? Guess what? All made up. James yeah. Bond, you don't go and see that. Yeah. Interstellar, don't yeah. I mean... Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's madness. It do you know madness. people who say that? I do know people who well, say that. Well, you tell yes. them then. I will, I will fools. tell them that. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, they're missed, them that. and they're absolutely missing out. Um very early on we meet we also meet uh, Lieutenant Colonel Chernov of the FSB, yeah. which is the Russian equivalent uh, of the CIA. And he we learn was a soldier and priest. Mm. And when he talks about God speaking through Russia alone, uh, so therefore, laws come from God, and therefore this gold, which I'm now going to help myself to, uh, actually belongs to God. I mean, that's a very useful kind of. It is. Sorry, I've got to take this, yeah. but it belongs to God. Where where did that come from? I, I mean, it sounds like 
Every country has its own exceptionalism. Right. Our country, your country, and clearly Russia does as well. Where did, where did you come across the idea of God speaking through Russia alone? I was just fascinated by that. So I wanted his character to be very um, terrifying, if I could. And I wanted him also, I, I did not want him to be, at the same time, I was sort of struggling with this as I was as I was crafting him or trying to find him as a character. How do you make a terrifying Russian intelligence officer not a cartoon, hopefully? Mm. You know, because I, I think we've all read and, and, you know, books or seen movies where you have that evil Russian villain who also you kind of know in the back of your head, even if they're entertaining, like this person bears no resemblance to reality. Um, what I did for him to try to overcome that, and hopefully I have, is I, I read uh, some philosophy from Ivan Ilyin, who is a sort of fascist, Russian fascist philosopher from the 19-teens and, and 20s, and who has been kind of resurrected by Putin and some of the people around him, wow. who has this view, this very, it's very hard to read the stuff and understand what in the heck this guy was was saying. But he has this view of Russia as a salvific force and Russia as being sort of the way that God redeems the world. Uh, and as a result, Russian state power is sort of sovereign and, and holy uh, and and can do no wrong. Uh, and I thought if I combine this with my character who, you know, sees himself on this sort of holy mission, you'd have some interesting stuff to work with there because all of a sudden he's not bound by any sort of typical view of morality, ethics, interpersonal relationships if he really believes this stuff, which he does. And so that permits him to he can take gold, he can kill people, you know, all in the name of of really these ideals that he sees as being, you know, holy and 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 above the world. Uh, we can't really talk about Russia without talking about Putin. And Putin does. I literally finished this book on the tube on the way here, and uh, so no spoilers. But Putin does feature um, in sort of a brief scene um, towards the end. Um, he's referred to during the book as, and I'm going to mispronounce this. K, it's Kozian. Kozian. Yeah. And I'm probably butchering it a little okay. bit too. But okay. yeah, Hosian. But even though he, as I say, he features briefly in one scene, but he is often referred to throughout the book. And there's a, there's a great sequence where uh, one of your characters is de is describing how um, Russian, the, not the Russian people, but the Russian rich, how they view Putin. Mm -hmm. And it is not entirely complimentary. And so I, I, I want to, I, I, basically what I'm doing is inviting you now to, to tell us that bit in the book where they are talking about how they view Putin and how it's, uh, it's a little nuanced. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, outside the system, I think we have this view that He's universally feared and respected uh, inside. And there are elements of, of truth to that. There is a, there's fear and respect that's built into the system. He couldn't survive in power without it. At the same time, you have this, you know, a system where people laugh at him behind his back, uh, where he is all powerful in one sense. And then in the other, he's sort of not able to make things happen inside the bureaucracy. So I think there is a a tension or some paradox built into the power structure. At the same time, you know, 
power in Russia is very centralized. It sort of moves out from him, I think I say this in the book, in rings, you know? So the further you are, literally in proximity to his office or his person, the less power you have. Um, and as soon as that system starts to feel under stress or that maybe there's less power there than we thought, things start to move around it to try to reconsolidate or take, you know, just selfishly take more power, take more turf if you can get away with it. So it's a it's a much more complex system, I think, than we see from from the outside. And it's one that in the novel I take advantage of because you do have these factions that are competing. Uh, and I try to show that explicitly in the book. I think from the outside, we tend to see the outcomes of those spats. You know, someone falls off a third-story balcony in Moscow. Someone, you know, falls in front of a moving car. We see that, but we don't see the buildup to that and the interplay between the personalities that leads to that kind of outcome. Um, all, I think, sort of symptomatic of the way power in Russia is handled. When you're writing about Russia, obviously, uh, you run the risk of news overtaking your own story. So obviously, the war in Ukraine continues a hideous, brutal uh, war, an imperialistic war from from Putin, uh, essentially. And then because there's a, there's a, one of the themes of the book is a coup against or the possibility of a coup against Putin. Right. We looked as though that's what we were watching for a while, just a few months back. Did, did you watch those and think, I'm going to have to go back and change anything? <laughs> it's a weird feeling to be watching potential moves against Putin and to feel like, oh man, I hope this <laughs> no, guy do doesn't that. get don't tossed, do you know? <laughs> I need uh, it. <laughs> like, I'm rooting for Putin. Me and Putin are on the same team today because I don't want to have to edit this thing again. <laughs> uh, which was a legitimate, I mean, I woke up that day and saw that. I thought, oh boy, you know, this is, <laughs> this is bad. Because I think at that point, the book was almost to the printers in the States. And it, I think my editor there would have would have murdered me if I had tried to suggest more changes. We'd already been through a round of this though, because, you know, on the cusp of the sort of proper, you know, invasion in, in February of 22, I had literally just finished the first draft that, that my US editor had read. And throughout the kind of November, December, January buildup where it was becoming apparent that something was gonna happen, I was like, I, I, you know, I have to go, I'm going to have to go back and render all the scenes in Moscow and St. Petersburg. Now, some scenes required more changes than, than others, but I couldn't draw Russia without, you know, the war being present. And I had to go and actually change some of the stuff in the beginning of the book because I felt like getting to the, the actual guts of the operation that the CIA undertakes, well, you know, we were sort of already at a point where it was possible to imagine the agency doing it. I didn't need some of the preamble that had existed in earlier drafts to get us there. So in some ways, it kind of streamlined things. I could take that stuff out. We just get right into it. Um, but it was, you know, at the time, it was it was looking like it was going to be kind of a mess editorially because I just had to go back and rework a decent amount of it. Is it Proctor who, in talking about the battle between America and Russia calls it a fight without end. Yes, yes. That's That felt as though that was coming into our world as well. That felt like that's how you view this thing, that whatever happens, whoever wins the American presidency, I mean, we know who's going to win the Russian mm. election for president there, but it's a, it's a fight without end. I, yeah, I, I used Proctor. I think there's a couple points in the book where her 
very colorful and profane speeches uh, or monologues about Russian power or geopolitics or the U.S.-Russia competition, I think, reflect my own views. Um, and, and and this would be one of them where, I, I, you know, you look at two countries that have very, as you mentioned, exceptional views of themselves um, and, and who are constantly in conflict. How does this, you know, in the 90s, you know, we sort of lived in this strange reality where the Russians, they were so weak that we thought, well, it'll eventually be the case that we'll just sort of merge them into our system and and they will exist as a quote-unquote normal country inside the sort of U.S.-dominated global order. You know, well, surprise, Putin and the people around him who come out of the, the you know, KGB and, and you know, the sort of St. Petersburg mafia around, they don't view Russia as a normal country. They don't view it as a component of, you know, the U.S.-led global order. They view it as something wholly different. And we're, we're now seeing the sort of outcome of that. So I, I don't think there's a there's sort of a, a way in which the U.S. and Russia no. exist unless, unless President together Trump, normally. Uh, you know, a, a future President Trump decides to go, hey, that Putin guy, you know, we we have lots in common. We like mm. each other. You know, maybe we should uh, get together. <laughs> God help us. I mean, you know, <laughs> sure. I think uh, even, even then the idea that the United States and, and, and Russia can, it's not that there aren't areas where we could cooperate. I think it's just that you know, you look at the the sort of full expression of, of Russian power and how it sort of defines its role in the world and the territorial space in which it should have a veto power. And I don't I don't really see how we can coexist with that in its in its fullest expression. I really and don't. Anyone who picks up your books, David, is going to take it as a given that, uh, that we're on solid ground as far as geopolitics is concerned, as far as espionage is concerned, and all of those things. What I wasn't expecting was the etiquette lesson in how to behave around rich Russians, uh, which which happens um, in, in I would I love this bit, and here's this is I always have one sequence, uh, one batch of questions I ask um, authors when they come in about, is this made up or is this actually true? And so and they're always I, made up. They're, they're always made up, but I'm, 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 I'm so dumb, I always am convinced that it's true. So this is the, the etiquette when uh, dealing with Russians. Always look people in the eye. Good posture. Don't put your hands in your pockets. Eat more than you should. But some tidbits were useful. Don't show the bottom of your feet. Point with your whole hand, never your finger. Men should use a bone-crushing handshake. Do not whistle indoors. Uh, and leave a little food on your plate to show that you've been satisfied. Are those things true or did you make them up? They're, they're, so as far as I know, they're true. Oh, and and I, I, I subjected myself to etiquette lessons from a number of Russians because I said, look, this is going to sound strange because I'm writing a spy novel, but I want you to tell me if I'm in very upper crust Russians, how should I behave and what are some things that you should not do? And so, you know, this was the list that came out of those conversations and lessons. Now, you might have a Russian listener who, who disagrees, and I'm open to that. But as far as I know, these are true. Never whistle indoors. Never whistle indoors. I'll be very curious if you get a listener that says differently, though, but this was what I was told. Um, just just on, the, uh, on, the, on the people that you thank in the credits, because Matt, Matt has mentioned... Uh, Russian etiquette. You, you you mentioned a former FSB officer, mm -hmm. um, Jan Neumann, and I'm thinking, okay, this is 
I mean, they're obviously fantastic contacts that you've got, but you can credit a former FSB. We know the way Putin operates with people who are former FSB. Um, is that a made-up uh, name? No. Uh, he... I asked him, I said, you know, look, he'd been very helpful. He read drafts and we've had meetings, conversations to kind of go over many points of this of this book. Because I did feel at some point like I was trying to find somebody who'd been inside the system, not just, you know, inside the Russian government, but in one of the security services and came upon him through some contacts. And he's been remarkably helpful and, and, and helped me on the third book. And I said, how do you want to be credited? And he said, just put my name in the book. By the way, Red Draft would be a good name for your next book. Red Draft. <laughs> um, also, also, and you can spell draft a number of ways. Right. Means all <laughs> um, the other person that I just wanted to mention is that Matt and I both work with Gordon Carrera yeah. when we were at the BBC, uh, BBC security correspondent. He's written uh, books himself. He's a fascinating, uh, fascinating guy. But you thank him for... Uh, pointing out that Brits don't eat candy and that <laughs> houses in St. Ives don't have um, ceiling fans. Ceiling, ceiling fans. fans. I forgot, yeah, I forgot what they call. In fact, most places in Britain don't have, <laughs> right, don't have, don't have ceiling that's right. fans. That's that's top info. You've got a bit <laughs> well, of intel there. I'll, I'll tell you as a, as a as a novelist, you start. I mean, you know, I send I send the books and have, have many CI officers who will read them and provide comments on the on the tradecraft and i i was as i was going through the editing process on this one i thought you know i need to have somebody who has some recent experience in, in cornwall just read these drafts to tell me did i get basic things wrong uh and and he you know he read them he's like i don't think i've ever seen a ceiling fan anywhere it's <laughs> your point yeah. like anywhere kind of in no, written really. uh and i thought that that seems that seems right it was you know in damascus station um, I think because a couple of the embassy kind of affiliated residences had them, I was like, okay, it's normal to have a dishwasher in a Syrian home. Well, no, no, uh, it's not. And I had, you know, an intrepid reader sent me an email a few months after the book came out and said, I, you know, I really love the rendering of Damascus except for the dishwasher. <laughs> uh, and so, and so you've got to, you know, there's a, there's a certain, we talked about author paranoia earlier. I mean, that's the level of the paranoia here is like, I'm going to render something that seems so inane that I, I don't even think about it. But, you know, I'm going to get I'm going to get an irate email from somebody that's <laughs> yeah. like, well, you know what? There's no ceiling fans here. What are you talking about? Have you ever been to St. Ives? No. It's the most amazing. You will never come back. You'll I don't. That sounds sinister. <laughs> yes, it does. That does. <laughs> now, I don't about. think I'm going to go now, Simon. <laughs> it's the most beautiful part of Cornwall. You will absolutely love it. Yeah. It is, it is yeah. an absolutely fantastic place. We touched on this last time you came came in, but just help us out on what you can't say. So obviously you can't say specifically what you can't say, but you, your inner code must think, I can't do that. I can't say that. I can't have my characters behave like that because I'm giving too much away. Mm. Is there anything? This is a good way to ask the question to get me to say things I shouldn't say. <laughs> I, I, that's some excellent tradecraft. Um, so... I think when it gets down to it, there's actually less than you would think that you can't say. Really what it comes down to is sources and methods. So anything that I would write in a book, fiction, nonfiction, whatever, that would be identifying of, a, of a, an actual human or a collection method, no way. Um, and so if I were to put, you know... Syrian, Russian, whatever, if I were to sort of fictionalize an actual human, but it's kind of clear who it was, you know, that would be, 
I'm not even sure that the that the CIA would like that the people reading it would necessarily catch that, but to me it would be just mm -hmm. no way. I mm -hmm. couldn't I couldn't do that. I think the other thing would be, you know, particular pieces of tradecraft that are not in the open domain and that, you know, I'd consider to be proprietary or otherwise. Like that would be irresponsible of me to include, even if I could find some way to sort of sneak it through the publication review board. And so I, I really, there is a, there is an element of self-censoring that happens that I don't think detracts from the storytelling, but that I feel like is important just given, you know, that I, I was inside for a little while and, and have contacts who, you know, know things that are not in the public domain. Are there any events that you covered or witnessed that you haven't been able to bring yourself to put in your books? Um, Obviously, I, and again, if there are, you're not going to tell, but that's the whole point no, I'm not saying. But I just wonder if if there are some things, actual events that you think, I'm going to leave that alone. I think uh, more from the standpoint of not feeling like I could uh, maybe, you know, Damascus Station, some of the some of the events in that novel, I did hold back from kind of going in as much depth as I maybe could have more from just a, it was, it was hard for me to, the war is still kind of a hard subject for me in, in some respects emotionally, because just because the, the, the sheer amount of human chaos and tragedy and suffering, it's less from sources and methods, CI stuff, and it's more just, am I going to be able to, would I really be able to render this effectively? Um, I don't know. It, it's more on that level, I think, than any kind of CIA stuff. Uh, I, I, I kind of know the answer uh, to this, and Matt has mentioned it before you, before you came in, that you, you have an incredible work ethic. You seem to be able to, I don't know how, how you were as an analyst, but as a writer, you, you are so far ahead of everyone else that we've ever <laughs> spoken to. Uh, so Moscow X is, uh, is the book that we're talking about. And next from you? So next is, uh, so it's done. The third book's done. Of course, done. It, of course, of it, course is. it is. <laughs> it's called The Seventh Floor. And it is... It's not called Red Draft. <laughs> it's not called Red Draft. Although I might steal that. I'm going to okay. take that. That's a, that's a good one to have in the hopper. Um, it is a mole hunt. So it, it's a bit of a modern homage to Tinker Tailor, uh -huh. Soldier Spy. From the new John le Carré, I see. Yeah. Uh, and, and which which that that book is, it is my favorite spy novel ever. It has been for, for since I read it. Um and it is Artemis Proctor back in the George Smiley role. There's there's a Russian asset at the highest levels of Langley. Who is it? That's essentially the book. So she's back. She's George Smiley. And uh, Sam Joseph from Damascus Station is back as her her henchman to, to root this mole out. Um, I had a tremendous amount of fun with that book uh, because the mole hunt – is a little bit of a different structure. It's more of a whodunit in some mm -hmm. respects. So you're, 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 as the author, you're trying to retain that mystery throughout while giving clues direction along yeah, the way. Who is it? You know, you've got your you've got your sort of uh, cast of suspects. Which one of them is it? Give them all some motive. Make them all a little bit suspicious. Uh, there's a wonderful. I did a. Uh, extensive research trip to Las Vegas for this uh, novel where I. Uh, went with a, a friend of mine who's a, a serious gambler and spent about, you know, three days there just sort of 
seeing his life. So I've got some stuff in Vegas. There's some stuff in an alligator-themed amusement park in Central <laughs> wow. Florida. Okay. Um, and uh, and some stuff in in Moscow and Southern. Okay. France and then after well. that, after that book, you on the next one? I'm on. I'm on to the next one. I'm of about course. halfway. Oh my God. Into the next one. <laughs> I feel so depressed. <laughs> But it's very early days on that one. There's no oh, really, oh, yeah. It's only really, a five hundred thousand words uh, or something. Uh, so the new book from David McCloskey is Moscow X. It is fantastic. It is extraordinary. You need to read them as a primer for those next two books because yeah. those next two books are going to be out like in a couple of months' time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, probably uh, there will be more conversation with David in our um, Q and A, which will be with you in a few days' time. For the moment, David, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. This has been tons of fun. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the aging process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford, and Craig Revel-Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.